Welcome to the balance sheet where you can rise above the noise and learn about the most important business issues of our age. I'm your host and fellow student, Conrad Chua. It's the start of a new year, a new series of episodes, and it's useful to look at what 2024 might have in store for us. We'll look at the macroeconomic and technology trends for the year with our two guests. First, we have Michael Kitson, Director of the MBA here at Cambridge Church Business School and one of the Assistant Directors of the Centre for Business Research. Welcome, Michael. Hello, comrade. Good to be with you. We also have Hamza Mudasir, Fellow and Faculty in Strategy here at CJPS and Founder of Strategize Inc. Hamza, welcome. Good to be here. So I asked Michael and Hamza to prepare three predictions each. One will be a high probability prediction, so maybe 70 to 90% possibility. Another, uh, a medium probability, so 30 to 70%. And finally, a low probability prediction, where it's less than 30% likely. And we will grade them at the end of the year, whether a prediction comes through or not, if there's a report in the Financial Times that confirms all this. So, Michael, could we start with your high probability prediction? Yeah, certainly. Um, my high probability prediction is that inflation is going to be a lot lower in 2024 than it was in 2023, or in most cases, was in 2022. Just to illustrate that, you'll see on your screen um, some regional, some global and regional innovation data, including the actual in forecast. This is a report that's just been recently produced by the United Nations. So what you see here is if you look at the blue bars, that's the inflation rate in 2022. If you look at the light green bars, that's the inflation rate in 2023. And the dark green bars are the forecast inflation rates for 2024. So what you'll see in most cases, not all, that inflation is predicted to be much lower in 2024 compared to 2023. Um, so that's my high probability prediction. What's important about that, of course, is that lower inflation doesn't mean that prices are falling. It means that prices are increasing at a lower rate. Um, but what it also means for monetary policies, in most cases, interest rates around the world will be lower in 2023 in than compared to 2024. Uh, that may have an effect on consumption. It may have also have an effect on firms' investment. Now, what I should stress about economic forecasts is that economics is not a science, that's just a natural sciences. What we're trying to do is understand why people do what they do, why firms do what they do, and why countries do what they do. And there's lots of uncertainty around that. So although most economists would expect inflation to be lower in 2024 compared to 2023, there will be factors, global factors, that could push this in another direction. So we're seeing, for instance, the moment the, the, um, the, the attack on the Houthis um, and that is, is largely because of the disruption to supply chains in terms of transportation from Asia to Europe and elsewhere. That's going to have an impact on supply chains, going to have an impact on inflation. If there's escalation of the conflict in the Middle East, if there's escalation of the conflict in Ukraine, if there's escalation of the conflicts or potential conflicts between China and Taiwan, that could make, have a major disruption on these forecasts. So I think it's a high probability 
that inflation will be lower in 2024, but there's no guarantees about this. Thanks, comrade. So, um, Michael, the last two years, 2022, 2023, they were very painful years for many people and economies because of high inflation. Um, So is this all good news, having lower inflation? Well, in general, um, inflation, lower inflation is good. Um, So most countries aim for inflation to be low and stable. Very few will aim for it to be zero because there's also a cost of inflation goes negative. That tends to disrupt consumption and disrupt firms' investment. So we generally want inflation to be low, stable, and predictable. So we're moving back towards a more low inflation regime. Uh, and that does mean we have we should have lower interest rates. It will take some time to get there. In some cases, it may be painful. In some cases, it may be disrupted. But of course, not everybody gains from low inflation. Uh, if you have high savings, then your, your, the, 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 your interest rate on those savings is going to be lower in a low inflation regime compared to a high inflation regime. But for most cases, most countries want inflation to be low, positive, stable and predictable. We're moving back towards that pathway, but it will take some time to get there. And is it also necessarily the case that things like equities would benefit or you know, that kind of asset class will benefit from uh, lower inflation, hopefully lower interest rates? Yeah, there, there should be some benefits to the markets from, from lower inflation, but there's lots of other things going on. Uh, we'll, we'll explore some of those issues here later on in our discussions. But the, the geopolitical tensions, what's happening to economic growth, what's happening to productivity will also have a play. Um, so it's not a perfect correlation by any stretch of the imagination. Well, thank you so much, Michael. And a reminder to our viewers, if you've got any questions, you can put them in the chats or comments. So, Hamza, what is your high probability prediction for the year? I think uh, looking um, from a from a technology perspective, um, I think the the most uh, probable outcome I was thinking in terms of big tech um, was uh, Tesla's resurgence. I think that. Uh, um, there's a lot of hype around uh, Chinese automaker BYD uh, and how it has taken over the, the volume and the market share uh, from Tesla in terms of number of cars shipped. And um, a lot of um, experts are very quick to sign off uh, Tesla and its controversial CEO, Elon Musk. Um, from, what, from what we can see, um, Musk is not afraid to go into a price war. So um, BYD's best-selling car is between the price of 15,000 and 25,000 US dollars, um, where it has gained the most share. Uh, Meanwhile, the Model Y is around $35,000. So there is a price difference that is there. And uh, number one, I think uh, Musk will cut prices to gain back the traction. I think number two, there have been significant uh, improvements in how a Tesla is built, especially at the undercarriage of it. So traditionally, including electric vehicles, there are around 400 components that you need to put together to make the the bottom half of the car. And uh, Tesla is able to now use 3D printing uh, to allegedly build just one piece. 
and that reduces costs significantly, reduces the time to innovation significantly. And that is going to be used to bring the next version of the cheaper version of Tesla. It won't happen in 2024, the cheaper version of Tesla, uh, but it's likely to happen in 2025. It's called the Model 2, allegedly. And um, it will be in the same price range as BYD. I think for this one year, um, I would expect Tesla to continue cutting prices and to uh, to hold its share and to hold its dominance until it is able to price match at a product level. Hamza, you you used the word alle- allegedly quite a few times there. Yes, and uh, that's one of the things that we've see with Elon Musk and uh, his sometimes his promises that you know the whole idea of going for a very high-end product that will generate profits that will then go into producing a next uh, level and next level and he has did did that but it's sort of stalled a bit at where it is so why do you feel that uh, what, what makes you so confident that Tesla is really going to break through and go into the cheaper car of the math for the masses? I think there are a couple of reasons for it. Number one, they were able to do that in, with the Model 3, the, the $35,000 car. They were able to do that. And right now, the Model Y, which is an SUV offshoot of the Model 3, is the best-selling car in the world by, you know, by volume and not just by revenues. So number one, they were able to do it, but he always over-promises, but he ultimately delivers. I think that's one. Number two is that in terms of technology uh, and capabilities, um, while BYD should not be written off, um, Tesla continues to make uh, geometric leaps in cost reduction. So BYD is very good with um, with cells, which is where they originally came from, from battery manufacturing. Uh, but Tesla has been able to uh, solve a lot of the long-standing issues um, in manufacturing in totality. So I think that betting against Musk, despite his uh, controversial um, persona, is probably not wise. And I think that his uh, aggressiveness in uh, keeping Tesla up front, uh, combined with what we know uh, from industry leaks, uh, is going to be a significant uh, cost advantage for him, means that he they will bring the party back to BYD, let's put it this way. The other part of your prediction was that uh, incumbent auto manufacturers, uh, say German, Japanese, American, will continue to falter. Why do you feel, why do you say that? Oh, so there are a couple of reasons for it, right? So um, the first one is obviously the, the product gap, but that does not explain everything. Uh, there are definite network effects that Tesla enjoys from. So Tesla's, uh, you know, last year, the jump in share price after the slump that came in with the, with the technology bubble kind of bursting uh, came in from the fact that all automotive makers uh, or, or the big automotive makers like Ford in the US are critically dependent on Tesla's electric charging network. So those network effects are now very strong and it makes uh, puts Tesla in a position of power. So I think that is one of those things that now when you start following the standards that have been set by your competition, you you will falter. It is going to be one of those things. And the second thing is this, that it's a very, Tesla is a very data-driven company. So for the past, you know, five, six years, they have so many sensors and cameras and all of those data points flowing in from each of the cars that they have sold that they're, 
uh, capabilities when it comes to things like self-driving, uh, which is critically dependent on having the right amount and the right variability of training data is unmatched. They're very much an AI company as well from that, from that perspective. And uh, those, these two network effects um, are really hard to catch up with, the charging and the data. And so I think that we will probably end up in a situation where you have this American company in the form of Tesla sitting um, on top of the food chain or probably sharing it with BYD. And then you might have a couple of other Chinese manufacturers. Um, but I think Japanese, German and Americans, it will be tricky for them to catch up. Mm. Well, of course, one of those things, the things that uh, Elon Musk always over promises is this full self-driving. Yes, yes. But, um, you mentioned the product gap for incumbent auto manufacturers and there have been reports that demand for EVs has cooled uh, because of you know, the cost being high, sometimes repair costs and insurance costs as well. So what do you think about an auto manufacturer like Toyota hmm. who had a view that EV adoption will be much slower than many people thought and they've invested heavily in hybrids? Yeah. I mean, so, so what about uh, them? I think if you if you were to look at valuations, uh, the way ma the market rates them, um, now for several years now the market has consistently uh, not rated them as highly as Tesla, because the even if things get delayed by a couple of years, the wind is blowing in the direction of of uh, electric powered vehicles. There are just way too many advantages. Um, that the technology presents. Yes, demand seems to have cooled in certain places, um, primarily because of the inflation that, uh, that you know, uh, inflation graphs that we saw um, by, by Michael um, uh, in, the last, in the last slides. So that obviously the affordability gets into the way, but um, given the fact that uh, BYD and Tesla are going to bring the prices down to what is considered to be in mainstream, which is between fifteen thousand to twenty-five thousand dollars for a for a really good uh, uh, electric vehicle, means that uh, internal combustion engine companies have only so much that they can compete with. Uh, the low price point is, I think, one of the last hurdles left. And if the electric charging networks continue to grow at the rate at which they are, um, the wind is blowing in the direction of electric. We have a, a question from the audience about this. So uh, Michelle uh, asks, given the unique design and features of the Cybertruck, do you think it has the potential to dominate the big truck market in the US when uh, that's the kind of traditional pre preference of American car? He puts their truck buyers, but I think American car buyers tend to prefer big trucks anyway. Yeah. So what do you, th do you think the Cybertruck will help tip the balance? I mean, not, not in its current form. I think it's probably worth pointing out that the very first sports car that Tesla made it was a terrible car to take on the road if you wanted to. I think Cybertruck is there uh, in terms of a concept, uh, in terms of what it provides, um, in terms of product superiority, is still not very clear cut. And uh, a lot of uh, the big truck, American truck buyers, are looking for a lot of range that uh, in terms of, you know, the number of miles that can be covered by a car after a full tank or a full recharge. 
um, it, it does not have a lot of those. And I think that right now it is going to be uh, a niche, uh, but given how quickly the company innovates over the next 18 months, that could change. The next 24 months, it could change. Uh, but as of right now, it is going to remain an expensive niche product. And Ahmed almost asked the, rever the, the, the other side of the spectrum, which is what about uh, a BYD SUV? Uh, is there any new model launches with high safety standards? And of course, we're not an auto, we're not uh, top gear here. But I guess the, the question obviously. the question would be uh, if I re reframe the question is actually for um, people like myself who are not very familiar with BYD, what is the kind of market positioning? Are they yeah. uh, a good quality, cheap, good value for money car? Yeah, so I think that BYD's positioning is very clear. It is cheap and safe. So, um, so there is a lot of uh, their safety comes from their expertise in um, lithium ion and uh, you know lithium nickel battery manufacturing, in which they were able to. Uh, and that's one of the big hazards that you have with electric cars: is the battery can catch fire. And so their their ability to make those situations very low probability and highly safe um, coupled with low prices uh, some of it is subsidies from the chinese government and some of it is with the fact that you know they keep a very rigorous check on costs um, that is where they are positioned and yes they have nice cars like they have polished cars they have good quality cars but um, tesla is ahead in terms of um, just technology tesla is ahead in terms of luxury positioning in terms of being more like the Apple of cars, whereas BYD, I would say, arguably is a lot like the Android of cars. The very best BYD uh, car, much like an Android phone, uh, will probably not be able to match the prestige and the functionalities and the software of the very best iPhone or the equivalent of a Tesla. Okay, well, I think, Michael, your next prediction might have uh, some bearing on how Tesla and BYD's fight for global market share plays out. So what is your medium probability uh, prediction? Yeah, thank you, Conrad. And um, I think it does relate um, to, to the discussion we've, we've just had. Um, my, my medium probability prediction is that there will be an increase in protectionism and nationalism yeah. in the global economy in 2024. We have seen an increase in protectionism uh, over the past few years, mainly between the USA and China, which obviously links to the Tesla BYD debate, but also involving other countries. And I think there may be an intensification of this in 2024. There's no guarantee, it's a medium prediction. <coughs> Excuse me. A lot will depend on the outcome of the elections that will be held mm. in 2024. I mean, if we look at this chart, it shows the share of the, so from the FT, many of you will have seen this. This is the share of the global population with an opportunity to vote in national elections from around 1800 to this year, 2024. It's estimated that nearly half of the world's population will be voting in national elections in 2024. Some commentators have called this a global uh, election super cycle. It is the perhaps you could say the year of democracy. It's the highest percentage ever in terms of the ability to vote. Um, so we will see major elections in, in, in around about 50 countries. We'll see, as we know, major elections in India, 
Uh, of course, the U.S. presidential election. There'll be an election in Taiwan. There'll be probably an election in UK. We could go to the beginning of 2025. It's most likely to be in 2024. Now, what's the importance of these elections is what the leaders elected in these elections decide to do, particularly in terms of this area, in terms of economic and commercial policy. And what we may see is if we see an election of many nationalist um, politicians and nationalist governments, we'll see increased protectionism, we'll see increased nationalist policies, and we see countries becoming more inward looking. So we may see increased tariffs on goods, more trade disputes, and again, it may involve Tesla and BYD and many other businesses. And we may also see increasing restrictions on the ability of people to move. Um, just anecdotally, well, anecdotally, it's very important for us in, 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 the, in the UK is, for instance, the UK is putting more restrictions on the movement of people, which also affects our ability to recruit students, the talented students from all around the world, because there's restrictions now, increasing restrictions. So my median probability event is we'll see an increase in tariffs and protectionism. It will lot will depend on the outcome of all these elections, which were very interesting in 2024. So it will depend on the outcome of these elections. And it may be more challenging for those online who are engaging in international business. It'll be more challenging and more costly in terms of supply chains, tariffs and so on, and maybe very disruptive in the ability to attract talent from around the world. Mm. Michael, given that we know half, half the world is going to the polls, okay, granted not all of them will be freely competitive, very but given point. that we know that, why do you say this is um, only a medium level probability, this increase in protectionism? Because a lot will depend on the outcome of these elections. Um, um, so it will depend on who, who basically gets in. Basically, are, you, are, are, there, are they leaders inward-looking nationalists and blame others for their economic problems? Or are they more outward-looking, more willing to cooperate with other countries, more willing to engage in inter international cooperation? So a lot will depend on the outcome of these elections. I would, if I had to say, I mean, Comrade, you gave us this, this choice of, of, of high, medium and low. I think the probability is more than 50% that we will see increased protectionism in 2024. Um, for instance, if you look at the outcome of the US elections, now, if you look if you look at the pollsters, but even more appropriately look at the gambling odds, uh, the, the odds say that actually um, Trump will get in for a, a, a second term. He, he is the favorite of the bookies now, as well as the pollsters to get in in the US. Now, whatever you think about... Um, uh, former President Trump and perhaps the next President Trump about his policies, they are very inward looking. They are very protectionist. It is about America first. It's not about international cooperation and international coordination. Mm -hmm. I think actually the biggest challenge for the global economy now and possibly in the medium term will be the lack of global cooperation. If you do not get global cooperation, that increased protectionism puts, puts increasing costs on firms, make it more difficult for their supply chains, more difficult to recruit talent. And actually more importantly, perhaps, more, more challenging to deal with the big mega trends facing the world at the moment, of which perhaps the most important is climate change. If we're gonna deal with climate change, we need to have international cooperation. Now, have we been here before? Well, history doesn't repeat itself. I think Mark Twain said history rhymes. And actually, the current period now is rhyming with the 1930s. The 1930s where our countries became inward looking. They had so-called beggar thy neighbor policies, increasing protectionism. They become inward looking. And that actually led to a breakdown in international coordination, international cooperation. Then it wasn't the United Nations or the IMF, the World Bank. It was the League of Nations, which is a weak organization. That lack of international cooperation and coordination 
arguably helped to seed the economic foundations of the Second World War. Hopefully we're not in that place again, but we are in a very difficult time in terms of a lack of global cooperation. And I mean, I just Michael, want to mean, add, I just sorry, want to, sorry, add, add yeah, to Michael's points that, uh, yeah, absolutely. We are seeing a lot of protectionism. The U.S. Uh, is stopping uh, NVIDIA, which is a big tech company, uh, from selling some semiconductor graphic processing units in China. China has decided to shut down the export of graphene, which is used for uh, the batteries that you have in electric cars. Uh, the European Union is resisting BYD from uh, coming into Europe because they are afraid that they will eat the European car makers lunch like it is very real uh, same is with ai across the board uh, they are stopping uh, you know algorithms from uh, going across the border which is very difficult to do so i completely agreed with you on that yeah, thanks hamza and hamza you you mentioned um, algorithms ai so i think that lends very nicely to your uh, medium probability event yeah, so my medium probability event is that big tech is going to start doing something about uh, the fact that uh, generative AI is a, is a minefield when it comes to uh, cyber attacks, IP claims, data poisoning. Um, the past year and a half, everybody has been really excited about generative AI and its impact on business, its impact on our lives, the fact that it can solve... Uh, equations regarding protein folding three times better than a human being. It's all fantastic until uh, you look under the hood and you see that uh, generative AI um, is not secure. Um, and it is not secure for users. And it is also not exactly secure for companies that are using generative AI. So sort of talking about these three points here, the first one is cyber attacks. So for example, if you are um, using a chatbot, uh, and this was a uh, this was a uh, test that was done um, uh, by the likes of MIT Computer Science Labs that they they created a web page for traveling which had um, hidden hashtags and a bit of hidden code in it that tricked the chatbot, uh, which is called Copilot by Microsoft, to start asking potential customers on the on that web page for their personal details, their credit card details, uh, pretending to be booking a ticket. Uh, and it was very, very simple to do. Uh, and that is something that, you know, nobody has really tried to cover for. So cybersecurity is a big issue with, with generative AI. Uh, IP claims, New York Times uh, has sued OpenAI a couple of weeks ago, uh, given that ChatGPT produces answers are from generic questions in exactly the voice and um, the content from a New York Times article. So um, content producers have always been at loggerheads with uh, with big tech. So, you know, Australian news companies back in the day went against Facebook for uh, using their uh, content feed and giving it away for free. Um, and we, we are seeing all of that now swelling up pretty quickly with generative AI. And last but not the least is data poisoning. So we hear a lot of talk about how um, these large language models can be uh, biased against minorities, um, against certain political views, so on and so forth. Uh, but what is even trickier is 
that it is actually possible to make a large language model even more biased. Um, so you can, um, in a, back in the heydays of, uh, of when the internet started, you could make any web page that says anything, basically, and you can still do that. And uh, data poisoning is this, that you create LLM compatible web pages, which is full of nonsense or full of biased nonsense. And uh, that all of these things combined together makes uh, generative AI, uh, when things can go wrong, a ticking time bomb, minus the whole Terminator fantasy that they will take over the world. If you just look at it right now, it is a big problem. And so Microsoft has started to make some headway into that. You know, we've had uh, Sam from OpenAI talk a lot about it. It's not really clear how he's going to solve it, but this is definitely going to be one of the big things that I feel big tech is going to start tackling, if not solving. Uh, simply because these chatbots are now entering mainstream business and in mainstream business, you get sued if you start doing things like that. Yeah, so you can get sued, but I guess the other uh, way to look at it is you can strike some kind of partnership. Uh, and I was thinking about this just last night when I was trying to get Dolly to uh, make my cat look like a Barbie character and it said no because of copyright reasons. So do you see in the coming year, uh, people like the New York Times or Mattel yeah. saying, "Don't use my uh, to to LLMs. Don't use my copyright." Or will they enter into some kind of partnership and they they get paid something so that people like my daughter can create something using the Barbie copyright, for example? Yeah, absolutely. So I do think that there is uh, money to be made by the content makers. Uh, no question about that. Um, a lot of the large language models. Uh, right now rely on um, on um, offshore workers in emerging markets to do a lot of the tagging and the and the and sprucing up the content for machine learning and those are uh, the equivalent of the Nike sweatshops that you know uh, still exist today so um, I think that having uh, businesses that produce um, data that can train these large language models, will be a business of its own. And as you have rightfully pointed out that New York Times has not sued OpenAI for, you know, for the short term amount of money they will make. They are, they've sued OpenAI because they want to set an industry precedence. And from that perspective, uh, having credible uh, businesses providing data is way better than having businesses with data poisoning feeding into it. And this idea of AI, I think, uh, it's, it feeds into, Michael, your uh, low probability prediction. So can you share a bit about what that would be? Yeah, thank you, Conrad. Um, my low probability prediction is that the world economy, particularly the high-income countries, the so-called high-income countries, will see a productivity surge in 2024, um, possibly um, um, generated by, or possibly generated by AI. Uh, in this context, um, what's important to bear in mind is I think we often um, overestimate the short-term impacts of innovations and technological change and underestimate the long-term impacts of innovation and technological change. And this is the, one of the biggest challenges facing certainly high-income countries and facing many other countries as well. This is the growth of labor productivity in selected develop, developed countries and in the euro area. Um, so the blue bars show it from 98 to 2007, and the green bars show it the more recent data from 2010 to 2019. 
So you see consistently across the board, with the one exception of Italy, productivity is lower in the more recent period compared to the longer period. So this is basically output per worker hour. Now, why is productivity important, important economically? Well, Paul Krugman, who got the Nobel Prize for economics, said productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, it's almost everything. Because what productivity does, it tells you the ability to pay your workers higher wages, so a higher standard of living, your firms to generate higher profits and return on for investors, and governments to generate tax revenue to pay for whatever they think are appropriate government services. And productivity has fallen consistently. It's been, been much lower productivity over the past decade, if not the past uh, 20 years, compared to what went beforehand. So what we really need is to get productivity grow growing again. Now, what drives productivity? Now, productivity is driven by firms deciding to invest, building new plant machinery and so on. Firms and work or governments investing in people, human capital, skills, training. It may be MBAs. It may be PhDs. It may be better primary and secondary education. But what's also crucial is innovation and technology coming up with new ideas. New ideas drive growth. They've done this since the Industrial Revolution. But what the technology since the Industrial Revolution tell us is that a technology developed today will have an impact in 10, 20, 30 years time on productivity. This goes back to what another Nobel Prize winner, um, Robert Solo, said. He said in the 1980s, sorry, he said, I can see the computer age everywhere apart from in the productivity statistics. So I can see the computers, but why aren't we getting productivity growth? Because it takes time. And it takes time for, for technology to diffuse throughout the rest of the economy, to diffuse into other sectors of the economy. So picking up on Hamza's point, AI may be important. It may help firm corporate performance. It may help to drive productivity. But it may not be this year. It may be in the future years because who's, who's using the AI? Many of the big corporates are incorporating it. But smaller and medium-sized enterprises are struggling to use AI at the moment. They don't know how to use AI. So AI may be, might, may be the solution to drive productivity, which is a big, big problem for many for countries. But that productivity surge is unlikely to happen this year. That's why it's my, my low probability surge. Now, AI may be different to other technologies. I, it speeds up and diffuses quicker than the steam engine or even IT itself. Um, but it probably won't be this year. And what we need is complementary policies and complementary um, strategies by firms to actually incorporate the best of AI to generate productivity growth. So I'm optimistic in the long run that AI will help to generate productivity growth. Less optimistic in the short run. We're not going to see a productivity surge this year, I don't think, but we'll, we'll hopefully see it in the future. And I think one of our colleagues here at CJVS, Michael Barrett, who does has done a lot of work here, talked also about how businesses have been very much slower to adopt AI compared to consumers. We can, you can just type in openai.com and you can play around with ChatGPT. Um, and he said businesses are slower because there are risks that uh, Hamza was talking about. But yeah. also uh, AI changes not a job, but a part of a task. And then it becomes quite difficult when there are all these different sort of processes. Um, but Michael, very quickly, I mean, we... During this time when you see this drop in productivity, um, we had the mobile you know, smartphones, billions of them all over. Are you saying that things, something like a smartphone, which has been, the iPhone has been more than 10 years, 15 years now, uh, hasn't helped at all in terms of increasing productivity? It may have helped at the margin, 
uh, comrade. And it may have helped people's in terms mm. of their personal quality of life. But it's only had a small impact on productivity within the corporate and the public sector. This is productivity for the overall economy. So it's only had a smaller. It's done other things, and perhaps it's improved the quality of life, or in some cases may have decreased the quality of life. Um, that's another issue. Is technology always good? Sometimes it, technology and innovation may be bad, but it hasn't had it hasn't had a big effect on productivity. And there's been other factors that have, that have discouraged productivity. What's apparent in many economies, particularly the one I'm speaking from now, the UK, is a lack of investment by firms and a lack of investment by the government and the state. That's, that's, that's government that's investment in, say, infrastructure, roads, broadband, and so on, but also investment by firms. And then when we talk investment in macroeconomic terms, we're not talking about stocks and shares or bonds. We're talking about building capacity, um, building new factories, building new offices, buying the latest technology, buying the latest machinery. So we haven't seen that. So any development in terms of the, the, um, the, the mobile phone and so on may have had some effect, but it hasn't compensated for these structural problems. We're not investing enough long term for, in terms of firms in most cases, and we're not investing enough long term in terms of governments, in, ter in terms of the, creating the capacity for future economic growth. This productivity problem is in many, many economies, uh, and it is a real problem. Hopefully, AI will be part of the solution. But all I'm suggesting here is that 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 result will not come short, not, not come in the short term, it will come in the medium longer term. The diffusion and impact on AI may be quicker than previous technologies, but I don't think we're going to see it in the productivity statistics mm. 2024. So Michael, very quickly, we've got two questions from the audience. The first from Marco, which, um, what are the barriers for AI use in small medium companies to re realize these productivity gains? Well, let, let me, uh, that's a great question from Marco. Let me make some suggestions here because I'm not sure the research has been done. But I, I looked at research on, uh, in pre, in previously on the adoption of various IT um, products in, in, in services. And actually, many small and medium-sized enterprises are very risk-averse. They're very risk-averse about utilizing technology because they're worried that if they make a mistake... They will invest in the wrong technology and they will invest in the wrong investment that will cost them money and that will affect their, their short-term survival. Many firms are actually concerned about short-term survival rather than long-term growth and development. And they don't want to take the risks, arguably because it's costly in some cases, or they don't have the good information. So one of the best ways to deal with this as a government to, to encourage the diffusion of innovations is to make information better available, particularly to small and medium-sized enterprises. The big corporates can do it, the small and medium-sized enterprises are more challenging, better information and to try and reduce the cost of diffusion of technology. So this is a big challenge, for, particularly for small and medium-sized enterprises in many economies. The big corporates, picking up on what Hans was saying, are actually leading the way. We're seeing that when we're talking some of the big corporates. But much of the rest of the economy, the hinterland of the economy, is not doing it, certainly in the UK, and not doing it in many other economies as well. And Mitchell asks, many companies in developed economies are planning to drop their need for a bachelor's degree as a job requirement due to hiring difficulties. Could lower education standards uh, affect long-term productivity growth? Well, is that one for me, Comrade? Because I think conventional economic theory, uh, and I'm not a conventional economist, but conventional economic theory say, yes, it would. Because it would say what drives productivity, yes, is investment in plant and machinery. Yes, it's coming up with new ideas. But what's also crucial is investment in what economists call human capital, which is basically training and education. So if you're investing in people, that will help your productivity. 
Now, of course, what the, the problem here is what what are the skills you require in an economy? So in a developed economy, a high-income economy, the skill might be different to what's required in a so-called low-income or middle-income economy. It depends on the, on the structure of your economy. And we have to say here, of course, not all degrees may be applicable for all sectors of the economy. And actually, often getting a degree is not the skills that you acquire. It's the signal it gives to the market. So it's not a perfect correlation. But in general, we tend to think that not investing in skills in education is going to harm your long-term productivity growth. And, and that's, a, that's a crucial issue there. So it's a very good question from Mitchell. Yeah. And uh, we'll have to uh, go over to an, a beneficiary of uh, the education system here at Cambridge, Hamza. Uh, Hamza, you've got one last... We're all beneficiaries, uh, Conrad. Yeah, one last uh, prediction from you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think um, uh, pulling in from Michael's point regarding productivity, um, Apple is, is entering the augmented reality space with their Vision Pro uh, headset. And the Pro is for uh, professional, for productivity, uh, the way, whatever way you would want to read it. And um, some people think that this is, uh, uh, this is the iPhone moment of, uh, of mixed reality, uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, which has long been um, you know, a distant a contender for mainstream consumption of content, mainstream ways of working. Um, it has been a little far off from that perspective. I think it's a very, given the price of the of the Apple uh, Vision Pro, which is above $3,000, um, I think there's an extremely low probability that this is the iPhone moment for, uh, for virtual reality, augmented reality. Having said that, I think this is, uh, the moment where the ecosystem will start building. So right now we don't really have the ecosystem for at least augmented reality, where you are able to uh, mix digital, um, you know, information with uh, real life that you're seeing through your eyes, and that has been very fractured, very fragmented. No killer apps, and uh, Apple's presence and their financial horsepower means that they will incentivize developers who will then make apps that are worthwhile for something like a Vision Pro. And in a couple of years from now, we will have uh, a sleeker, smarter um, you know, set of glasses that have apps that you really want. Uh, back in the day on the iPhone, you had Angry Birds, which really got people excited about the touch controls. Um, I don't think we need Angry Birds for the Vision Pro, but given that it's a productivity tool first and foremost, we definitely need an ecosystem in place that makes it successive, uh, which might be the iPhone moment for augmented reality to be useful. Debasis actually asked this question earlier on, which is, um, do you think Apple will reduce this the price? Because 3,500 US dollars is quite a steep, steep ask. Yeah, I think that Knowing Apple, they're not going to cut prices now. I do think that they are going to build the scale and the capacity to come back with what I think will be a superior product down the road. It might not have all the bells and whistles of the Vision Pro, but I think it will be less bulky. It will look less like a astronaut's helmet and um, it will be cheaper to manufacture. So knowing Apple, they don't sacrifice margins. Uh, but uh, what we can hope for I think is this that they have uh, a capable successor. 
Mm. Yeah, and I'm personally more optimistic about uh, uh, AR and VR because uh, with Apple's coming in at the high end, but then it will lift uh, yes. mainstream attention to things like Oculus and uh, they've got Meta with the Ray-Ban glasses yes, as well. Yes. So I think we'll see quite, unlike the phone market where everybody had the same thing, a phone, I think this one we're going to see quite a wide range of products. Absolutely. So I, Absolutely. I think so. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Michael and Hamza, for uh, sharing your predictions at the end of 2024. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. And uh, I'm so sorry we couldn't get through all your questions. And if you like the show, please repost it on your social network. Uh, hopefully by the end, at the end of the year, we will grade Michael and Hamza, right? <laughs> Since they both teach, they are very used, used to the whole idea of grading. Uh, the, the balance sheet will be back on the 26th of January, uh, where we will talk about product strategy and management. Till then, stay well uh, and stay safe and we'll see you next time.